There's a fine line between being a finicky eater and having an eating disorder. That line isn't the same for all people and doesn't even exist for some people. My guest today takes exception to the phrase eating disorder, and she is going to explain why. The Eating Liberty Podcast, episode 237, Food and Freedom, once a week for life. Stan Reed here. Welcome back to the Eating Liberty Podcast. Graduations and weddings are just around the corner. So is Mother's Day. You know the boring traditional gifts. Try something new. Cheese platters. Yeah. De Bruyne Brothers in Philadelphia is one of the country's longest-run cheese vendors. Let them help you pick the right cheese gift box. You can even have charcuterie added to it. Visit them at my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash cheese gift. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash cheese gift, all one word. Jessica Setnick is my guest today. Jessica is one of the most recognized names in the eating disorder nutrition field. She is the author of The Eating Disorders Clinical Pocket Guide, among other publications. Jessica has built her career on helping people by breaking down complex concepts into actionable tips. Hello, Jessica. Thank you for joining me today on the Eating Liberty Podcast. Delighted to be here. Well, that's great. How exciting. So before we get into our topic, which is, so we're going to have fun with terms. We're going to talk about eating disorder. And I, and I said that on purpose because it, it, it means a few things and it doesn't mean a few other things. Before we get into that, can you give us just a brief okay. bio about you and how you got here? Sure. So uh, I'm not sure how I got here. That's the big mystery, isn't it? But uh, me, I am a registered dietitian. That's how I was trained. I was uh, went to school with got a degree in anthropology, another degree in sports nutrition, and ended up as an eating disorder dietitian because that is the area where it's most let's say, kosher to talk about the psychology of eating and eating behaviors and those kind of things that really fascinated me. And so through the field of eating disorders, I've been able to do a lot of education like this. And so I'm hoping to answer questions that you imagine that your listeners might have about eating disorders and bring some some new ideas. Okay. Well, probably if anybody thinks about an eating disorder and that and we're going to kind of parse that term it's okay. probably the first two things somebody thinks about are either um bulimia or anorexia which may be the same thing or also severe obesity which probably has other things going on than just intake of calories but and that's Actually, a different show. Probably have done that show, but that's, but but that might be something that someone can look at somebody and say, "Oh, that might be what an eating disorder looks like." I agree with you. The There's outside. a lot of stereotypes about what an eating disorder looks like, and they're all wrong. So anybody that eats can have an eating disorder, yep. and that's one of the things we're going to talk about is because what you see doesn't necessarily reveal what's really the case. Right. Um, so, so we have to begin with sort of to smash this notion that the, we're going to make a judgment call, the too skinny or the too fat, just mm-hmm. being simple, sure. um, have a problem. Right. We're going to smash any kind of idea that we could look at a person or even talk to a person and identify that they have an eating disorder because to me, and this is going to maybe make some people's minds crash, but 
there really is no such thing as an eating disorder because it's not a disease. You can't point to the broken body part. Until someone can do that, we're basically dealing with conditions that are diagnosed based on their outward symptoms. And so it's a real problem in the field because that is how eating disorders are diagnosed is based on the symptoms. But if you don't understand the motive behind someone's eating behavior, then you can't really identify that it's a problem or not. Because some people eat the same thing every single day and they're perfectly content and well-nourished. So how can you say that's a problem? But some people eat the same thing every day because they're petrified of eating anything else. And that is a problem for them. But it's the exact same behavior. It's the same nutrition. It's the same everything. The difference is what's behind it, the motives, the the feelings, the thoughts, the fears. And that's something you cannot tell from looking at a person or even having a casual conversation or even eating a meal with them. Right. So now this is, so I think you, you've hinted at, you actually flat out said it. So we're going to continue with the phrase until we change it. An eating disorder is probably firstly a behavioral problem. And that maybe assumes something. Well, not necessarily. The behavior is the symptom. The behavior is the symptom. But what is the root? If someone has, a, let's say, a mutation in their DNA that causes them to not have a certain hormone that comes out when they eat and they never, ever feel full and they eat and eat and eat and eat until they throw up, they might look symptom-wise like someone with bulimia, but it has nothing to do with a, a mental disorder or a behavior. It has to do with a physiological, um, physical missing chemical in the body. So yeah, that's why I said it might cause some people's hard drives to crash here because really I think it's appropriate to talk about dysfunctional eating behaviors rather than eating disorders because the dysfunctional eating behavior, that terminology helps us see that it's just a behavior. It's an outcome. We have to look and see what's behind the behavior in order to actually solve the problem. No one's ever had their eating disorder solved by just let's say, being forced to eat more, being forced to eat less, right? That's that's just a temporary quick fix maybe for maybe a weight issue or maybe for, you know, I don't know what, a, a, a behavior. But that's not the root of it. The You know, the root of it has to be found. Otherwise, we're not able to really solve it. And so I've come up with a model that is it's still a work in progress, but I've been teaching it for about 10 years. And everywhere I go, people are like, oh, yes, this makes so much sense. Um, but there are four paths to an eating disorder. There's the biological, there's addiction, there's stress and trauma, and then there's learned behavior. And so if we can figure out at least which of those four paths someone is on, we can start to whittle down what is at the root of their dysfunctional eating behavior. And people can even do this for themselves. Um, you know, at least in part, because what you're trying to do is go back chronologically to really where the eating dysfunction or disruption started. Because as usually if you can get back all the way to the beginning, you can figure out, was this a physiological problem? Like, did someone get their tonsils out and then they, you know, they didn't like eating after that? Or did someone have a terrible experience? Like, if you think about Friends, the show where Chandler hates Thanksgiving because his parents announced at Thanksgiving that they were getting divorced. Like, that's just a simple example, a silly example, maybe, but a simple example of how someone's feelings about food and eating can get tied up in something emotionally difficult that happens around food and eating. So if you can go back in time to where something started, we can often figure out where the root of the problem is, and it may be very, very distanced from what the eating symptoms are. doesn't mean the eating symptoms don't need to be treated, but they're never going to be, let's say, ultimately solved unless we get to the root. I'm going to make an assumption that some of the Go examples you've used are things you've seen happen. Uh, sure. The thing that was interesting to me, and that I guess it, it sort of makes sense since genes can sort of just come on and off at any point in a person's life is, and I don't know what the gene is, but you mentioned that a gene or a hormone that prevents someone from feeling full and, and satiated is, is one of yeah. the, that that's a really yeah. hard word because it's hard to explain what it means. Um, yeah. And I suppose that that's, I just was reading somebody, 
uh, who says, I've loved cilantro my whole life, put it on everything. And then one day, literally it tastes like soap. And so apparently yesterday her gene was not turned on. And today her genes turned on. It's like, man. Well, that, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with that gene, but I can tell you that, yes, as far as hormones and things like that, there are mutations. Um, but if you have a mutation, you've had it your whole life. But yes, you're right. Certain things sometimes turn them on. And sometimes what turns on genes is actually dieting. Food restricting turns on certain genes. And so someone who maybe didn't look like a person with an eating disorder for most of their life goes on a diet and that actually triggers them to have some of these problems. But there are there's a, a condition called Prader-Willi where someone never ever feels full. It's just they, they don't have that feeling and that's lifelong. Um, there's also just the gene mutation where someone, um, there's, okay, I can explain satiety. That's easy. There's two different kinds. There's chemical satiety and mechanical satiety. Mechanical is when, if you put your two hands together, your two fists together, that's the size of your stomach and it can stretch. And when it stretches, there's stretch receptors. There's muscles in your stomach wall that stretch and give you a, a feeling of fullness. Your stomach is pressing on your other organs. At the same time, you also have chemical satiety, which is when chemicals are created that go to your brain and send you that message of, whew, I've had enough. And they're two different things. And for some people, they may feel brain full before their stomach is full, and other people never feel stomach full. And some people feel stomach full long before their brain is full. So it's it's two different processes. And yeah, I mean, there's, when you start thinking about it, there's so many things that can go wrong. It's kind of amazing how many people don't have problems, right? But if you think about any, any show, ER or Grey's Anatomy or House or any of those, there's always people who either get diagnosed with an eating disorder that really had celiac disease or vice versa, right? It's one of those things where there is no blood test for an eating disorder. It's diagnosed based on symptoms. And so therefore those symptom diagnoses can be wrong. Now, this is an interesting question. So there's, there's a lot of, a lot of ways and you've, you've, you've said so a lot of ways things can go wrong and it can happen at any yes. point in time because, yes. because our genes keep changing and the body's a very complicated thing. Um, through a variety of circumstances, I can't even begin to understand or explain. My wife has developed a few autoimmune diseases. One of them is Hashimoto's. And okay. one of the treatments, it's not really the right word, one of the ways to sort of manage it, the, the symptoms best is to eliminate gluten. And so we've done that. And it, uh, gluten for her, and I think generally for Hashimoto's people, gluten makes them just ridiculously fatigued. Um, so we can fix that problem by not eating gluten. But this, to somebody who maybe has a low-level celiac disease and hasn't been diagnosed with it, just knows that, wow, when I eat, when I eat bread or I eat these things that, without even thinking about it being gluten, but our glutinous can... So this person has an aversive reaction. Well, this uh, bread and pie and cake don't make me feel good. I'm not going to eat that. And maybe that same thing happens with seafood or shellfish or or beef or who knows what. Can can the can the behavioral change to a physiological response to food end up creating? And we're going to call it dysfunctional eating. Yes, 1,000%. Because if you think about it, we don't often eat foods in isolation. So let's say someone does have a reaction to a food and then they eliminate that food, but then they still have another, they, they have the reaction again. So this happens all the time where someone, and, and it even can happen with emotions. But let's just say that I get a stomach ache when I eat. So if I eat a sandwich and I get a stomach ache and I think, oh no, I'm not going to eat sandwiches anymore. But I eat pizza and then I get a stomach ache and I say, oh, okay, I'm not going to eat pizza anymore. And then I eat, you know, I don't know, a steak dinner and I get a stomach ache and I say, I'm not going to eat steak anymore. When the truth is maybe I have some underlying gastritis and I, I need to get treated for that, right? So I can be developing a, an emotional or psychological aversion to foods 
whether it's individual foods, whether it's all foods, because I actually have a physical problem that I haven't identified. So yes, absolutely. 1000%. So the, the sandwich and the piece of the obvious connection there is flour. Maybe not. Maybe not. If you have gastritis, anything you put in your stomach is going to make well, you not feel right. good. What That's is, what I'm saying is, is the brain, we try to come up with these connections to protect ourselves from being hurt or having a stomach ache. And sometimes the connections are not actually correct. Right. So, so explain, what is gastritis? Because I think we all think we know what that is, but maybe oh, I don't know what that is. Sure. It's just a, just a, an inflammation in your stomach. You just have a stomach bug. Sorry, fancy word for stomach bug. All right, so let's let's talk about inflammation because that can be a couple of things. That then um, you mentioned also your top four is stress, and there's there's both physiological stress and mm-hmm. emotional stress, and yes. and both of those things have very real, very serious impacts on the body, both short term and long term. Yes. This this inflammation can be, and we know that it can be caused by foods. Um, so high acid foods uh, for the celiac patient, the gluten. Um, there, uh, there's, there's probably scores of different ways that a food causes. Oh, um, the nightshade family, boy, sort of infamous for causing inflammation for people who are sensitive to. Uh, I'm going to get. I'm going <laughs> to try to be fancy and smart and come up with a thing that's in peppers and eggplant. But those things cause inflammation, or maybe and there's some un. There, maybe there's inhospitable bacteria trying to live in our stomach, and the good bacteria are putting up a fight against the bad bacteria. Maybe that's causing inflammation. That's right. There's so much that causes inflammation and you can't possibly eliminate all of it, but it's the sort of excess things like smoking and things that can be eliminated. Those are really, that's really the way to go because trying to have like some kind of perfect way of eating is pretty destructive usually in the end because there is no perfect way of eating. And that's, that's what you were talking about, where someone has a physical ailment and they try to solve it by eliminating everything from their diet that causes the problem. But sometimes people can end up eliminating everything and be really stuck. And there are actually a lot of a lot of practitioners that kind of prey on that. I'm sure you've seen those where they do a blood test or a saliva swab and they come back with like 150 foods that you shouldn't eat, like the red, green, yellow thing. And there's only like three things you can eat. That's that's not correct. Well, eliminating everything is not a good choice, and that is certainly not a path to wellness. Correct. My, my 16-year-old daughter went, decided she, she was a qualified vegetarian, and I'm not entirely – <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because she's a vegetarian that doesn't really care for vegetables very much, so she's not very good at it. Um, so I don't know, and since I was never a 16-year-old girl, I was a 16-year-old boy, and if it was on the plate, I ate it. Well, there were a few exceptions to that, but um, I don't really, I don't, it's it's a bit of a challenge in this family for the guy who cooks everything to for having a daughter that doesn't want to eat anything. Um, and then she's fine with, you know, most things. It's just it's it seems to be a, a brain thing. And I'm not gonna diagnose her here. It just it's an interesting observation that she likes a burger. She likes chicken what do you call those things? Chicken fingers, chicken wings and and tacos. Just weird. Um mostly it's an annoyance to me. <laughs> well you're right. She's she doesn't sound like a vegetarian if she's eating burgers and tacos she's not. and chicken wings. She's uh, I a part of me thinks it's a 16-year-old trying to figure out how to develop and assert a sense of independence. Yeah, that's really normal. And lots of people do that through food. Absolutely. So I'm glad that you attempt to accommodate it, but you can also say, I don't know how to cook something that you want to eat. Why don't you find some recipes online and we can try them together? We've tried that. What do you want? I don't know. Well, here's, and I've got 
you can't see them, but there's dozens of books there. We bought her a book on vegetarian food, and I'm not entirely sure she's even looked at it. So it's it's, it's mostly it's a I think it's a 16 year old thing. Um, Maybe so. But anyway, um, you have an interesting book and an interesting book title, Food Fairy Tales. What are oh, yeah. food fairy tales? Well, they're the stories that we tell ourselves about food that usually we picked up either from an outside source within our family, the people who raised us, or possibly from um, you know, society, messages that we get about food that aren't necessarily inherent to food, but are um, emotionally tied or tied to an event in our lives, something like that. And in order to have a more healthy relationship with food, we have to learn what our food fairy tales are, make them spoken instead of unspoken in our minds, and then decide if we want to keep them or not. So for example, I gave a workshop recently on food fairy tales, and one of the participants, after we did an exercise, she said, I have a binging problem, and I never connected it before to Halloween, but we used to be able to you know, I was very restricted as a kid on what I could eat and how much I could eat because of my size. Everyone wanted me to be smaller. But on Halloween, we could eat whatever we wanted. And she said, now when I'm around candy, I just go full Halloween on it. And so the idea that she was still carrying this message that it's it's only okay to eat what you want if it's candy, right? So she would diet all the time, but she would then eat candy as much as she wanted. And so that was a message that she got from a very young age. And once she realized that's what was happening, she felt like she could now make an adult decision about whether she wanted to keep following it or not. So that's a simple example. Another example, actually from that same workshop, is someone who said that she always has to have something cold at a meal because her mom always had to have something cold at a meal. So Anytime, let's say they were having spaghetti and meatballs for dinner, her mom would go get some pickles or something. There had to be something cold on the table. And, it, you know, that one may not actually be harming anybody. But the question is, you know, what if there is nothing cold? Can you function? Can you still eat? Do you feel guilty? Or is it just sort of like, I like to have something cold because that's the way my mom always did it. And the classic example um, that is not true is the one where the newlyweds go over for Easter dinner to um, the in-laws house and the husband says to the, oh, sorry, the wife says to the husband, hey, how come there's no end on the ham? And the <laughs> husband says, I don't know, that's the way my mom always did it. Years. Do you know this story? Yeah, everyone knows this story. You know this story already? Yes. Oh, yeah. So it ends up being, you know, they end up going all the way back to the great granny. Why did you cut the end off the ham? And she said, well, we only had one pan and the pan wasn't big enough for a whole ham. So we cut the end off. Right. So three generations <laughs> later, they're still cutting the end off the ham and nobody knows why. But that's just the way they do it. And so that's what Food Fairy Tales is about, is figuring out where this stuff that's in your head came from. And then deciding consciously as the adult that you are now, if you want to keep those rules or not. Uh, the, the ham one, it, it has dozens of, of iterations. And, and, and the funny part about that is, and uh, we had a house with the smallest oven I've ever seen. It was in the wall like an oven's supposed to be, but it barely fit. A small sheet pan. Like, so when I heard that story, I said, oh, man, I understand that exactly. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it, it, it can happen. Who knows? Sure. You mentioned the person. So you, you offer two examples. One person who eats macaroni and cheese every day and is, is mostly well-nourished. And the person who eats macaroni and cheese every day who is who has a dysfunction can... First of all, I don't remember mentioning macaroni and cheese, but are we talking no, about? I'm, I'm, I'm making oh, a okay, specific okay. example. Someone who you eats said the just same eat the food same, every day. Okay, got the it. same thing. Okay. Um, for the person who suspects doing that is an eating disorder, how how would a person begin? The process of sort of is self-diagnosis even even possible? Maybe maybe self-awareness at least is the first step. 
Yeah, but I would say there's no need for self-diagnosis because there's no need for diagnosis at all. Why would you have to get a diagnosis in order to get help if you're struggling with something? A dietitian is willing to help you. We don't need you to have any specific diagnosis. Our goal is to help someone with their eating regardless of whether it's diagnosable or not. If it's something you're struggling with, like your daughter, she doesn't have a diagnosis, but a dietitian could possibly help her sort through why she wants to be a vegetarian. And if really she wants to be a vegetarian or does she really want something else? And is there another way to get that something else that maybe doesn't involve being a non-vegetarian, but claiming she's a vegetarian? Like there's definitely a contradiction there. And so the question becomes, what are you getting out of identifying as a vegetarian? Because it's clearly not enjoying new recipes with your dad. In my limited language, diagnosis was what I came up with, and that okay. probably is not the right okay. word. Maybe that's maybe that's too medical specific, and, okay. but but self reflection, self awareness, yeah. um, just uh, you know, wasn't it? Um, who asked some some philosopher said the self examined life's not worth living. So reflection on on what you're doing, and, may, and maybe maybe thinking about why I keep doing this same thing all the time. Is there more to this story for me than the not? Yeah. And that's actually what I think Food Fairy Tales is all about, is trying to piece together where did I get this idea? When did this behavior start? And what are the what are the benefits that I get from it? In other words, I mean, just another example, I'm thinking of um, a client who on Valentine's Day, she would binge eat a lot of chocolate. She didn't like that she was doing it, but we were able to deduce that she was doing it because it helped her feel close to her dad because her dad always bought her a lot of chocolate on Valentine's Day and her dad was no longer living. So you you sometimes have to go beyond what your sort of conscious mind thinks. Like her conscious mind would say, I'm just a bad person. I'm an overeater, right? We had to kind of talk about, well, what 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 is this eating chocolate on Valentine's Day about? Do you eat chocolate on Fourth of July? Do you eat chocolate on Thanksgiving? Like, why? What's significant about Valentine's Day, right? So, so yes, self awareness is really important, but I also think you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. I think Einstein said that, and so you really have to a lot of times have another person, or at least write things down on paper where you can look at them more objectively versus just having them in your head and trying to sift through them can be really challenging. Do you think, and maybe this is too broad to answer accurately, that a lot of dysfunctional eating seems to happen around holidays where there, there would be a very strong emotional tie to something or someone? Sure. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, part of- Ch- Chandler's Thanksgiving yeah. and this person's Valentine's sure. and probably Christmas and- I think that's definitely true. I think anything that is a combination of an event that involves any feelings, enthusiasm, stress, whatever, plus, and, you know, the connection with other people plus food, that's definitely an easy breeding ground. I mean, I'm thinking of something like as simple as birthday cake, right? I don't eat birthday cake on my birthday because I'm hungry. I eat birthday cake on my birthday because it's my birthday and someone made me a cake and I'm eating it. And, and today is my daughter's birthday. And so she's getting a birthday cake today too. Great. So, but that's what I'm saying is, you know, any kind of situation, yes, holidays, yes. But then the question mark is if I'm only eating birthday cake on my birthday, it's fine. Who cares? But if I'm eating birthday cake every day because I feel like no one cared about my birthday when I was a kid, right? Sometimes we carry things over. So the classic example is a breakup. You have a breakup and then you're eating ice cream out of the containers, like a super cliche cliche, right? So who cares if you eat ice cream out of the container after a breakup one Saturday night when you're lonely, like it's seriously no big deal. But if nine years later, you're still eating ice cream out of the container every night, then it's not just about the ice cream. It's about these unresolved feelings that you're carrying for nine years that you're just taking out on ice cream. So it's not really about ice cream, right? But ice cream is sort of the visible symptom of some feelings that are not being addressed. Well, to be fair, they're not really making it very easy because those Haagen-Dazs pan containers really truly are single sermon containers. So... I, they used to be. I, I, I actually don't do that anymore. But I know how easy it would be to do that. 
a, a sound diet for well-rounded nutritional intake and a well-balanced macro intake seems pretty simple that that's the, one of the first best ways for humans to flourish. If, if this said human is eating macaroni and cheese every night, I'm going to assume, based on what's in ma even homemade macaroni and cheese, there's probably missing some major components there. But if that person seems to be functioning perfectly fine, and is there an eating disorder? How, how, who, who, who makes that claim? Who decides this eating behavior now is dysfunctional? Sure. So you have to think of it as a spectrum of, is it impairing their functioning? Um, that's the question. And you haven't said what this person is eating the rest of the day. So if they're eating a I don't know. I'm just trying, I mean, that's, we're trying to sleuth that out. I don't know. I'm right. So I would want to know what they're eating the rest of the day too. And if they're eating the same things every day or they're eating different things every day, um, if they're eating macaroni and cheese three times a day, or they're eating a variety of, you know, other nourishing things. But the, the key to the whole operation is, is it impairing their functioning? Is this person flourishing in their intellectual wellness, their social wellness, their, um, emotional wellness, those kind of things, their physical wellness? Or is this a person who says, I can't have friends because they might want me to go out to dinner and I can't go out to dinner because I only want to stay home and eat macaroni and cheese. So that would be impairing their social wellness. Or if they just say, I'm really happy eating macaroni and cheese every night. I don't need any friends. Or my friends come over and eat macaroni and cheese with me, right? So it's it, you have to really parse down and using your words to what does it mean for that person? Um, are they, you know, are they only eating macaroni and cheese because that's the only thing they can afford? Or are they only eating macaroni and cheese because that's the only thing they know how to cook? Are they only eating macaroni and cheese because that's the way they were raised and it's the only thing they, they know they like, right? There's lots of possibilities. And that's the kind of thing that, again, we dietitians kind of love digging down into and finding out what the, the reasoning is. And as opposed to, and I don't want to, you know, criticize any general profession, but if I were going to, it would be doctors because there's lots of good doctors, but doctors tend to say things like eat less macaroni and cheese and they don't actually investigate what's going on. Doctors have gotten beat up a little bit on this show, medical doctors. And it's not because of the doctors necessarily. It's in part to do with the almost entire lack of nutritional education mm -hmm. in medical school. Well, um, I, I, I think but it's... Dan, Dan, let me interrupt you for a minute and say, yeah. let's just say that we know that there's a lack of nutrition education in medical school. Then why are doctors giving nutrition information? That's the thing. I do blame the individual doctors because they don't know and they don't realize they don't know. And my motto is, if you didn't do a full nutrition assessment, don't give nutrition advice. And I'm just thinking of my own husband who had high cholesterol and the doctor called and said, you need to eat less meat and eat more fruit and vegetables. And I told my husband, you tell him you're married to a dietitian and this is as good as it gets. You're eating as good as it gets. There's not going to be any changes. And if you have high cholesterol, you need medication in the end. Right? I mean, you don't know what my husband eats. Why would you say... I mean, besides that, you only get a 10% change in cholesterol from your eating. But anyway, why? Why Why would you say that to someone without having any clue what they're eating, telling them to eat more fruits and vegetables and less meat? You have literally no idea. Maybe we don't eat any meat in my house for all you know. It's just useless information. So I feel like the fact that they don't get any education in medical school does not absolve them. They should say, I don't have any education in nutrition, so go see a dietitian the end. Why do they, why do they just make up stuff? Yeah, One well, of my friends told me that their doctor said elephants live to be a hundred. So you should eat like an elephant. What does that even mean? Eat grass? Like <laughs> why, why do you have to make shit up? Excuse my language. Just say, I don't know the answer. What's wrong with that? Man, there's, there's, there's probably an answer to that, but it's probably not flattering and probably complicated. Uh, my dog is whining at the door. Um, it, it sounds that 
being at least in your shoes, a registered dietitian comes with a little bit of being a detective and a fair bit of being a therapist. Oh, yes. It's, that's so fun. I love to be a detective. My favorite story is a patient that was referred to me for having an eating disorder and she had this compulsion to eat. She would pull into the carpool line to pick up her kids and then suddenly feel like she had to get something to eat. And knowing she was going to be late to pick up her kids, she would pull out of the carpool line, drive through somewhere and get food and then come back. She just felt like she had to have something to eat. And some of the other things she was describing in in my assessment, I mean, we dietitians assess things like your menstrual cycle and, you know, sleeping and other things. And she gave me some answers that seemed very suspicious. And I said, you know, I really think you need to see, um, a hormone doctor. I sent her to a reproductive endocrinologist and she never came back. And a month later, we have a policy where if we haven't heard from someone in a month, we would, you know, the office would call and say, do you need to schedule a follow-up or is everything fine? And she asked to speak with me and she said to me, you saved my life. And I thought that was interesting because I saw her one time and she said that doctor you sent me to diagnose me, I had a tumor on my something, something gland and I had to have it removed and now I'm fine and I don't have that binge eating problem anymore. So, you know, that to me is the super fun part of being a dietitian is really, and, and again, I didn't diagnose her with that tumor, but it was clear to me that something was going on. I mean, that's our strength as dietitians is we know what food can and can't do. And so, you know, right there, when you tell me like, this is, you know, you're sweating through your clothes and that kind of thing. You know, it's like, this isn't a food related problem. This is something else. And so, yeah, I love that. Mm. Well, that sounds like once in a lifetime. Let's hope. That was once in a lifetime. That one was once in a lifetime. Yeah. How does, so this might be just an entire career in, in books. Addiction to foods, and I know that it happens. I'm not. I don't know that that's ever happened to me. I have. I used to have. A, maybe that was what it was. I have a very, very strong preference for sweets, and I kind of still do. But I figured out uh, substitutes, and also that if I wait five or ten minutes, that crave for the sweet thing will mitigate and it will then I can be fine. Do addictions happen? Are they, can, can someone's, I don't know. How, I mean, there's probably a hundred answers to how does an addiction happen, but what is, how, <laughs> so, how, so with food addiction, that's a, it's a very open question. I don't know the answer because no one knows the answer. There are people who will very strongly tell you, yes, you can be addicted to food. And there are people who will very strongly tell you, you cannot be addicted to food. And so there may be both. Um, there may be people who are and people who aren't. I do know that restricting a food tends to make people crave it more I also know that when you are switching from food sources of nutrition to stored sources, like when it's been a long time since you've eaten, there's a shift into stored liver nutrients. And for some people that transition is smooth and for some people it's not. And during those few minutes where you're feeling like I need something sweet, it might be because you're in that transition. And then once your pancreas kicks in and your liver kicks in and starts sending nutrients back into your bloodstream, you're no longer craving that those sweets. So it might just be you're you're experiencing a physiological reaction that you're interpreting as a sweets craving, or it could be an emotional craving. When something goes wrong in your day, you have a craving for sweets. I mean, there's so many possibilities and it's probably different for each and every person. That's why there's no sort of one size fits all advice on that. Sweets is definitely, and I understand, and yes, I recognize in me that, um, one, sweets are generally, most people probably have some version of it, and they're very, they're instant, they're there, they're quick, You even chocolate chips or something. Um, I'm not, I mean, I like potato chips fine. Some people's go-to for stress relief is chips. It was never me. It was always the sugar stuff. So with the Okay, so are we doing are we doing a nutrition session now? No, I'm just I I, I notice for myself, and and so the substitutes, and this is an interesting thing to observe that maybe it's a nutrition session. 
that I'm my my preference to this is is kind of weird. My preference I have deliberately decreased my sweets intake because I didn't like what it was doing to me physically and physiologically. So the reduction of that has pleased me. I said, oh, good. This is, this is the result I want. So I'm going to keep doing that. But sometimes I go, man, I really, really want that. And one of the substitutes that works spectacularly well, and I don't know why, is a really superior blue cheese or some other really good high-end, it's not American singles. I don't need that. Um, really spectacular, high-fat High salt, blue cheese, like it just, and, and walnuts. Well, because it, it goes well together. That's a good combination. And I love walnuts. But those two things together, it, whatever that crave is for that sweet thing is terminated instantly. And then it's just done. It's like, wow. So it's a cool thing to, it's a cool thing to observe. It's nice that I have a solution mm-hmm. to this problem. It's not eating mm-hmm. the chocolate chips. But that that I'm intrigued. That craving still exists, and so usually it's after a big breakfast. I don't usually eat breakfast. I eat, you know, eleven eleven or noon. I'll eat a big breakfast, um, and even after that, it's like I just want something else. So usually a salty thing fixes the sugar crave, which is I think kind of odd, but seems to work. Well, it sounds like you maybe are meeting some need that you have for some intense sensation but if we were having a nutrition session and you wanted to you know advice on that i would say you know next time that happens can you write some thoughts down about that you know can you or talk into your phone and try to gather information about what it what you're experiencing in that moment what what it feels like before during after and see if we can figure out what's going on there because um it's interesting but I don't have an explanation for you. At the same time, it's also okay to not have an explanation. If you're just <laughs> delighted, if it's not a problem, then voila. Right. Well, the, the writing down is an interesting idea because so I've, I've, I pay pretty good attention to how I respond emotionally and physiologically to the things I eat. And my breakfast doesn't vary that very much. It's four eggs and other stuff. And it usually could be, it could be leftovers from the night before. You, it's often chicken livers or some other piece of meat. And sometimes it's cheese, but it's, it's, it's fairly predictable. Um, dinner is a wide variety of things, but there's, but but having something written down to go back and look and see more and more and recognize a pattern more than just trying to remember it from two days ago. It's like, sometimes I can't remember what happened 10 minutes ago. So that's an interesting thought. That might, that might be worth doing just because I want to, I want to know. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm my yeah. best student. So I want to know more about me. Uh, for, now, for for listeners who are thinking, hey, that's a really swell idea. After what would be a good time period to sort of start looking and seeing patterns? Is a week too short? Maybe a month? What sh- what should well? Oh, what should people look for in in a kind of a journal think- to help them learn more about themselves? Well, I think even a few days, you could start to possibly see patterns. The key is that you're sort of enough time has passed that you're emotionally detached from it. And you can kind of look at it in black and white as if looking at another person's eating or thoughts and seeing if you see any patterns sort of from an objective point of view. I mean, the benefits of writing things down are that, you know, it's out of your head. It's not cycling in your head anymore. You don't have to try to remember it. So it's down on paper. You can look at patterns. You can look for patterns. You can separate your emotions from it. And also you can have someone else look it over and see if, if they see, see any patterns. But no, I think a few days, I mean, a month seems like a really long time to write down everything about your eating without ever looking back and reflecting on it at all. Um, but I guess if someone wanted to do that, they just wanted to just document, 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 don't look back, don't look back, don't look back. And then at the end of a month, flip back to see if they see any patterns. I think that would be a lot of data. Okay, well, I don't know. Through. I'm just, I'm, I just, yeah, no, I don't, I don't know oh. either. If it was me, you know, if I was, 
asking someone to, to keep a food diary for me as a dietitian, I would probably ask them to keep track for three or four days and then bring it back. And I would also be very specific about what I was asking them to keep right. track of. Like I might not care what they eat, but it might be important what time it is, or it might be important who they're with, or, you know, depending on what kind of things they're struggling with, I would keep track of that. Or I would ask them to keep track of that. So it sounds like in addition to the actual food itself, the environment may also have, may contribute to whatever other, I guess, feelings, both physiological and emotional feelings are going on with, sure. with the consumption of that particular meal. Sure. I might ask someone to keep track of their hunger level before they eat or their stress level before they eat, um, how they're feeling, what their emotions are after they eat, right? It just depends on what they're struggling with. There's so many things you could keep track of, but it doesn't make sense for everyone to keep track of everything sure. because, for example, some people, it might be important to keep track of, are you eating in the car? Are you eating in front of the TV? Are you eating while you're you know, folding laundry for other people where they are when they're eating might not be a factor at all. It might not matter. Right. Right. It might be more important to keep track of, you know, what it is that they're eating or, you know, who they're with or if they bought the food or made it at home or, you know, there's so many different factors. Did you eat everything on your plate or did you leave some over? Save some for the kids in Cambodia. <laughs> Do pay, I don't know. Uh, for me, it was. I, I, I remember that was. I'm I'm sure my parents said eat all your food because there's starving kids somewhere in the world, and even even then Everyone it didn't make sense because we can't send it to them. What does? <laughs> how am I helping? But that's where that's where food fairy tales comes in. Is there are a lot of people who are still eating everything on their plate because of what they were told when they were kids, even though it didn't make sense to them as kids. It's still in their subconscious. Those messages are so so. Um, What's the right word? Persistent. Those messages that we got when we were kids. Persistence is a good word. I think they can be very powerful too. My new book, 50 Things to Know About Being a Chef, is live and is available at culinarylibertarian.com slash 50chefthings. You can also find it on Amazon. And it does have what it says, 50 questions about Things I would have liked to have known before I got into the food industry. It may not have changed my mind, but it would have helped inform my decision along the way. Check it out at culinarylibertarian.com slash 50 chef things. Uh, I want to move into, uh, this is called the quick fire part of the show. It's just some short answers to some quick questions. Okay. Um, of the five flavors, salty, sour, sweet, bitter, or umami, which one's your favorite? I like salty and sweet combo. What's your least, I'm sorry, what's your favorite food? Oh my gosh, that's so hard. I have so many foods that I love. I don't know if I have a favorite, but if I had to pick one, it would be ice cream. What's your least favorite food? Oh my gosh, olives cannot be near an olive. Can't smell it. Can't taste it. Blah, blah, no. What sound do you love? Oh, I really love 80s music. No one's ever said that before. <laughs> what sound do you hate? Oh my gosh. I hate the sound of, of I can't even... Ugh, just thinking about it is so upsetting. Like a fork and a knife scraping on a like a chalky plate. Oh, we have plates in the house that my husband uses for this one specific dish he makes. And when he makes it, he gets me a different plate. I think that is true love. My the vegetarian daughter also hates the sound of a plate scraping on a, a fork scraping on a plate. It's just. It's it's worse than the stop it. <laughs> what gets you excited? Oh. Well, I, I love my triplet niece and nephews, and so the idea of going to see them gets me very excited. They're they're almost oh. two. Oh man. What turns you off? 
off. I think people that judge others and, and don't have that ability to say, I, I've never been that person, so I, I really can't know. If you could cook for anyone ever, who would that be? Oh, my husband. And what, what's your favorite food indulgence? Indulgence? I guess ice cream. It's my favorite favorite. All right. So what is your, what is the best ice cream? Oh, gosh. That's, whoo, depends on my mood. This is not a, not a quick fire question. This is like a very thoughtful question. Um, but I would say Bluebell um, pecan pralines and cream would be a favorite. Okay. Uh, how can people follow you? Oh, well, my website is my name, jessicasetnik.com. And okay. you can sign up for my e-newsletter on my website. Um, I am also on Instagram is probably the social media platform that I use the most. And on Instagram, I'm understanding nutrition. Oh, very good. Well, I will put a link to the Instagram and the show notes, no, <laughs> and your website on the show notes page. Okay, I got, my, got ahead of myself there. Uh, I heard a dog back there somewhere, and mine's over there too. We did to go outside. I um, don't have any dogs. I'm not sure what you heard. And this dog bark, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, do you have a few minutes to hang around for uh, a Patreon portion? A what portion? Uh, I do a Patreon por portion, more sort of answers the oh, questions. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Patrons. Sure, right, yeah, well, I, have, so, I have until noon my time, so I have seven minutes. Okay, well, we can do something in seven minutes. Let's say a fake goodbye here. Thank you for your time okay. today. I appreciate it. Bye for now, Dan. All right, bye-bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll add Jessica's webpage to the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 237. Jessica has also created an offer for the Eating Liberty listeners. Use the link on the show notes page for her food fairy tales book and save $15 off the purchase price with coupon code CULINARY. Just use that at checkout. The link for that book offer will be on the show notes page. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. Have a good week. And I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.